notes for Nate. Thank you. Uh, well, tonight, oh saints, we're looking at a, our second um, idea that seems to be unthought, unaddressed. Um, people think about it a lot of times theologically, but then in regular life they they fall away from it. But even theologically many times they don't seem to function as the scriptures or think the way the scriptures tell us to function ethically. And, and when we talk about ethics, we're using it not in terms of what class you take, business ethics, or how do we know what is good. We know as Christians what is good. We also know from the knowledge tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we've all inherited a conscience and ability to discern good and bad, good behavior, right behavior, bad behavior. And uh, so that, that I, I don't feel we need to discuss that. We, we, as religious people, we have sought out a religion that we were drawn to because it offered us something regarding ethics, primarily. Ethics was the problem. Um, we knew what was good, we hadn't been good. That quote by C.S. Lewis last week about how we knew what was right and we had persisted in doing it poorly and we are at odds with the God. And as we look at um, how big this task is, God has made all things and he has made all things with this freedom to do um, yes or no and a intention that it be a certain way. He gave us a freedom, but there's an intention that his creation, from small things to big things, be done a certain way. And we think of that in terms of the uh, idea of an ultimate virtue, doing it the way God would have it done. Um, when we get to the idea of the covenant, uh, it's one of those words that people only tend to use nowadays in religious settings. They, they instead of having a contract, they want to covenant with one another, or um, it sounds religious. It's not really a religious term. It's an ancient treaty term. You get it out of ancient Hittite, or Mitzanai, or Ugaritic, or other, you know, uh, uh, Semitic people groups there in the Palestinian area and north, uh, we have examples where the same word is used for a treaty between people. It's this, I have a little definition, a solemn promise to engage in or refrain from a specified action and was the term of treaties in antiquity. Um, it, they, were, they could be all the way down to personal treaties or personal agreements. Um, husband and wife, two friends, Jonathan and David had a covenant together. Uh, uh, we have uh, uh, any kind of statement of a, a binding intention. And the point of a binding intention is that uh, what was being accomplished or what was being addressed in the covenant um, be worked out together, that, that, that they both felt these specified requirements on them that the benefits would accrue to the circumstance. Um, I have a little example here with the covenant with Noah. I, I just a short couple verses there on the left hand side, right hand side. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. 
Uh, skipping down to verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And he gives the rainbow, not a double rainbow, but a rainbow um, to be the sign of that covenant. Now, just because when people get all covenant happy, they start going looking through at covenants in the Bible as if there is some sort of sequential covenants that had to be accounted for, the covenant of grace, the covenant of you know law. And there are covenants that are sequential, but not all covenants, again, because it's not a spiritual terminology, it's just a record of an, of an agreement, a treaty. Um, the one uh, with Noah does not have any salvific purposes at all. It doesn't tie in with the covenant of Abraham um, at all. Uh, it's just a general, generic covenant for all of mankind that in future, no matter how rotten you get, I'll kill you all, yes, but not with water. You know, that's basically the agreement. Where we get to where it matters to us is where God, with when, when, when mankind has grown you know, past the flood, God had wiped the slate clean uh, down to eight people with Noah and his family. And they have slowly built back up into nation groups. Uh, they were sticking together at Babel. They were broken apart at Babel into all the nations of the world. And God has, in his desire to have this treaty and this uh, connection from his uh, free-willed creation to himself has this relationship with Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees uh, that seems to be of we don't have any pre-knowledge of Abram and his uh, behavior but he seems to be devoutly a follower of El or Elohim or the, the of God it wasn't Yahweh at the time um, and so chapter 15 of Genesis, our basic story that we're going to go after with this ethics issue, how the God, when he touches base with Abram and establishes a moral covenant or a covenant that is designed to uh, have a relationship with one man and those descending after him, um, where does that take us? And why do we come to the place where the law and grace are at at odds in St. Paul. Um, <clears throat> after these things, first uh, Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, thou hast given me no offspring, and a slave born in my house will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and, it reckoned, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Did I open in prayer, by the way? Nope. Didn't think do you think the people on the CD would mind if we prayed now? <laughs> Andrew's trying to get in. We'll wait for Andrew and then we'll pray. Let's just pretend we're starting now. Yeah, and we'll skip the first passage. <laughs> Jump right in. Always towards the light. Okay. 
Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this time together. Pardon our forgetfulness, my forgetfulness. We'd ask that you guide us through this important issue and we'd be familiar with the scriptures teach us about the way to righteousness. In your son's name, amen. So with, with Abram, um, he's Abram at this point. He becomes Abram in a few chapters. Abraham in a few chapters. Um, God establishes this covenant. Abram is around 75 years old at this point. It, the year is 1877 B.C. And uh, um, he's a wandering nomadic Aramean that uh, has uh, gone out with his uh, family to uh, Upper Mesopotamia and is out wandering on his own and God has made this covenant with him. And he says in verse 17, when the sun had gone down, I skipped over some verses about how he cuts the animals in half and walks between them and so forth. Um, that when the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces of animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and a land defined by all these people groups. So the covenant with Abram initially is that he would have descendants, a son, and that those descendants would inherit a rather large, extensive portion of land. Uh, it wasn't, um, I'm going to become a man and die for your sins. It was, I am going to, we're going to have this arrangement with each other where you as a people group are going to be blessed by me and I will be your God. Over on the right-hand side in Genesis 17, the restating of the covenant uh, 25 years later, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Skipping to verse 9, and God said to Abraham, because he just named, renamed him Abraham in the missing verses, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you, and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Like the rainbow with Noah, the sign of this covenant, just the sign of it, was circumcision. It was going to define the people group that were going to descend from Abraham. And um, keeping the covenant is this task of keeping the will of this God this moral demand. Uh, anytime you look at moral demands, you realize they have to have a superior to man judge in order to be compelling to anybody. And uh, uh, that's what God is working towards. But he's broadening the covenant, and we see this covenant coming down through the years, broadening in some cases, becoming more specific uh, all the way along. Now, well, by the time you get what, for those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, Abraham then has the child of the promise, Isaac, though he tries with Ishmael, and Isaac has Jacob, uh, though Esau was a strong contender, and Jacob has the twelve sons, who are the tribes of Israel, and they, a small tribal unit, enter into Egypt at the end of Jacob's life, uh, following Joseph, and spend 215 years there in Egypt. Uh, after being slaves for a while, they come out with Moses, 
And Moses, within a few months, leads them to Sinai, wherever that is. And um, Exodus 19 is the establishment of the range of the covenant, the, the duties of the covenant. Uh, there was an uh, uh, expected moralities that you can see hinted at through the first part of Genesis and Exodus, but this is where the law for a people group, the answer to the covenant, I'll make you the father of multitudes, 1.6 million people leave Egypt. Okay? So the promise to Abraham within, you know, six generations is 1.6 million people uh, leaving Egypt, and they are now a social group, a political group, a, uh, a horde on the march. They need a government, they need a guide, they need a uh, um, controls. And in chapter 19 and 24 of Exodus, um, there's the preceding paragraph before the law, before chapter 20 with the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments are given, and the, all the initial laws of Moses before it gets into Leviticus and uh, then the restatement of the law in um, Deuteronomy. So between these two passages is the initial laws of, of the Mosaic system. And he says, uh, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So there's this desire to hold a, have a relationship, a, um, a connectedness. The, the, the covenant brings this connectedness of understanding and expectation from a holy God to a not-so-holy people. And it's this, uh, the, there's a pressure of keeping, keeping the covenant. Then it goes through the law, and then it says in Exodus 24, And Moses took half of the blood, they slaughtered some animals in sacrifice, and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, which he had just written out with the laws, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, that sets the stage of the covenantal people of Israel following the law of Moses, not following the law of Moses, from 1447, that's the year that was written or happened, um, down to, uh, well, I guess the time of Christ. Um, they are um, not good at it, um, but they're very pious about being not good at it. In other words, they don't wander from it being there. There's a few times... Uh, the time of Josiah, the, the book of the law was lost for an extended period of time, and they just managed to find it when they were cleaning out the temple. They had gone after the Baals and the, uh, the false gods for so long that nobody knew what the law was. Um, so those things could happen, but generally speaking, the law controlled Judah and Israel for hundreds of years, uh, essentially a little over a thousand years, and uh, uh, kept it in place. Now, the problem is, our Old Testament, that's what the word means. Um, I don't mean to be crass, but testament comes from the idea of you swore with your hand under your father's thigh when you're swearing an oath, and that was, um, that was the polite way of saying uh, you swore on his lineage, basically, his uh, privates, uh, and hence testimony, okay? 
using every time you look at your Bible, Testament, uh, that's what you're, you're bearing. It's Old Covenant and New Covenant. It's speaking of the story of how the Old Covenant played out, how God judged people for breaking covenant. You'll see it all through the Old Testament. Um, he he uh, punishes them, they repent, they don't repent, whatever. But it's the story of this covenant, the promise to Abraham, that his people would be a special people to God, and these laws would be their guide and government, morally, ceremonially, uh, politically, health-wise, all sorts of different ways. But then with Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is in the 500s B.C., Jeremiah 31.31, this is sort of a key passage. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Well, this is sort of an almost an idyllic, utopian notion of the covenant, because the covenant was this desire to have this exchange, this expectation, this back and forth return and blessing and, and praise and honor between these two agents, God and the descendants of Abraham, and it wasn't working out. They, as he says, the covenant which they broke, they weren't doing it. And uh, Jeremiah is, is, from the word of the Lord, telling them that there's coming a covenant, a different one, not the one that came before, but a new covenant in which a pristine level of ethics were going to, was going to be the case. Now, the, the, the ethical frame that the old covenant handled, there were two things. Uh, and you sort of got to keep this in mind because sometimes your mind will split later on when once you're in the new covenant you'll still not realize that the, you, you split your covenant in half. Two aspects ethically in the covenant. One is making right the rebellion that had existed before. Sacrifices, etc. Yeah, how do you take care of the guilt? You had a sacrificial system, you had a temple, you had priests, you had mediators, you had... Um, uh, the prophets coming to convict the people of sin, they'd repent and sackcloth and ashes and have a way, a means of addressing that. The second, the second aspect is the positive ethical aspect in which there's a law. It says, don't do that. Okay? Stuff that you proactively, positively obey. There's the laws you obey to get right with God and the laws you obey to not get wrong with God. Okay? Those are uh, two halves of the covenant. And God says, in this case, this pristine utopian covenant that he is prophesying coming will be different in this way. The, the end result is to be their God and they be my people. That's what he had with the first covenant. I was their God, they are my people. Israel, the chosen people of God. This new covenant was going to have a new chosen people of God and they were going to be different, that they would have the law within them they wouldn't even need to try to get somebody else in the covenant to know the Lord because you only 
had this covenant if you knew the Lord. Because he says, no longer shall each man tell and teach his neighbor, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Everyone in this covenant already knows God. Okay, so there's a, there is a, a, a already a personal encounter. They have the law inside them, and they have personal knowledge of God, and I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So it's, it handles uh, both sides of a covenant, but it handles it in a sort of pristine way. I'll just forgive, and they will naturally understand and be the kind of people. They won't have this external law, nor will they need external reminders telling you to, you better do this. Now, this, I, I, I give a couple New Testament passages here on the side that, that are directly used off of Jeremiah, and we're going to come back to this passage because the New Testament writers use it a lot. Matthew 28, 26, uh, and Christ is at the Last Supper, and as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed, and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I shall not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Paul refers, is also recorded in Mark, I believe, with the words New Covenant, but Paul quotes it as this in 11.25 of Corinthians, in the same way also after, also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the New Covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, Matthew, Mark, Paul, all witness that this thing called out in Jeremiah 31 is at least being claimed at, at the crucial key moment of the establishment of Christianity, the death of Jesus Christ, the Last Supper, uh, the symbolism of his action at the uh, Last Supper. It says this is the new covenant. Now in Corinthians, um, 2 Corinthians 3.1, um, just to let you know, this is sort of pre-reminding you or getting further into the New Testament before we get there. Um, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on your hearts to be known and read by all men, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. That's echoing the Jeremiah distinction between laws written on stone, I'm going to write my law within them, I'll write it all on their hearts. And then verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ our God, toward God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, our competence is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not in a written code, but in the Spirit. For the written code kills, but the Spirit gives life. So you begin to get a sense that, hold it, maybe it's not just, well, the Jews are all right too, but we're just different, we're Christians, we follow Jesus, but all the kind of thing. No, the written code of the Jews was not, and we get this all through Romans and, and uh, Galatians, 
It was not to provide successfully what God wanted. He knew all along it wasn't going to provide successfully what he wanted. It provided something, but not that. It provided something, but not that. Because the written code kills the spirit, the thing written on your hearts, the thing promised in Jeremiah, it gives life. So we're going to want in, the, in our pursuit of ethics, if we're the kind of people that are pursuing ethics, and if we're tempted to follow the law of Moses, we should be told and reminded that the New Testament writers say, no, that is not the path to being good. That is not the path to successful righteousness. Um, you might want to look into this new covenant that Jeremiah promises to see how I get this written code, not written outside me, but written inside me, and how do I get the forgiveness? Remember, you want two things. I want to deal with the guilt, and I want to keep from doing bad things in the future. That's, that's what the religious man, he's, he's seeking God, and God rules his universe in such a way he loves to see people who are good and faithful servants, and we want to get there so we know we have to get rid of our dirty clothes, and we have to not get dirty anymore. And that's the task of this covenant. God wants a people that are pristine in their covenantal abilities utopian in what is being um, uh, in, in the expectations we could put on. We're looking for this effectiveness. Now, we get into Hebrews. Now, I, I had to cut when I first laid this out, it was eight pages. And I feel really bad about the stuff I cut out. But there is no human way. So I cut it down. But I had to cut a lot of stuff. Hebrews is largely about this. Galatians is all about this. Much of Romans is about this. So we're, we're, we're hitting the high points, but it's going to seem like, well, this is really thick. Wow, these are the high points? Um, yeah, they are. We've gone through in chapter 6 the introduction of um, Christ being after the order of Melchizedek. And so I, I, I can't go back and... and uh, refresh that without wasting our time. Um, but let's start with verse 18 of chapter 7 of Hebrews. Now remember, there's a promise of this new covenant. And we have in Christ and in Paul uh, both witnesses that Christ and Christianity is the answer to this Jeremiah prophecy. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Those who formerly became priests took their office without an oath, but this one was addressed with an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, thou art a priest forever. So Psalm 110, where he says, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you've been arguing that Christ is this Melchizedekian priest. Don't ask, it's a different question altogether, this makes Jesus the surety of a better covenant. We're, we're dealing with essentially warring covenants. Warring covenants that, that at least covenant comparisons where it's a versus, old versus new, new versus old. And there's already, you saw at the end of that Corinthians, 2 Corinthians passage, the written code kills, the spirit gives life. This one, the law is weak and useless. And nothing, something better has to come along, and a better, better covenant comes along in Christ. Now I'm going to skip down. He goes into discussion about uh, how the 
how Christ's priesthood is superior to the Old Testament priests, and um, how he's a perfect priest and they were not. Um, and he says in verse um, 5 of chapter 8 of Hebrews, down here at the bottom, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern which is shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry which is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For, that, for if that first covenant had been falseless, there would have been no occasion for a second. So he's, he's, there's this blame or incompleteness or weakness or uselessness, whatever term, killingness of the first covenant, and it needed to be fixed. It needed to be what the covenant represented itself as being, a path of righteousness and a system of uh, atonement for sin. It wasn't achieving. There are better promises, promises that can be met um, when, uh, when you step into this new covenant. Now, at this point, the writer of Hebrews just wholesale quotes the Jeremiah 31 passage front to back. Verse 8, it said, The days will come, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Quotes the whole passage there I read earlier out of Jeremiah. Down to verse 12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, I will remember their sins no more. So this, the writer of Hebrews is hanging Christianity on that Jeremiah, pristine, utopian covenant promise. Creating a people of God that are near to him actually. Near to him in a way that wasn't just superficial or as he talks about the, the, the tabernacle, serving a copy and a shadow. In speaking, verse 13 of a new covenant, he treats the first as obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The basic thing, you're, one of the basic things you want to come away with is if you have the new covenant in you, the old covenant is obsolete. If the new covenant is taken up in your life, it's got a method of reaching, uh, making you the people of God in a way that God approves, then the old covenant is obsolete. Now, we all know in this tech age, I don't know how long Allie's going to be satisfied with that iPad. Six months, I give it. Something new will come out, a 15G iPad that's the size of a Volkswagen. It will fold up to your hip pocket. Um, we can't, almost can't stand. Ever have a tra transistor radio? Do you even know what one is? Yeah. Obsolete, basically. Still works, but it's obsolete. And nobody can stand. When they have the new thing, you have to have the new thing. A lot of times, people who are called antinomians, you know, antinomian is sort of an insult. It just means against the law. And usually antinomians are, are guilty of being against the law so they can live like, you know, profligates. So they remove the law so they can do what they want. The obsolescence of the law only counts if I've got a replacement. Yeah, that, that's what makes it obsolete. It, 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 it still, matter of fact, St. Paul argues in Timothy that the law 
uh, is good if it's used justly, knowing this, that the law was not written for the just, but for the unjust. So the people who don't have the replacement of the New Covenant, it's fine to read them the Ten Commandments. It's fine to have let them know what the written codes are of morality out there, because they don't have that which replaces and makes obsolete the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is a step forward out of paganism. It's a step forward out of godlessness. But it is not does not answer it, but it announces it. It is a shadow of what's coming, a image or a prophecy of in itself of what's going to happen that is effective. But it, you have to accept that this has become obsolete as a method and that for it to be obsolete for you, the new one has to be present. Chapter 9 of Hebrews. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. How much more shall the blood of Christ? These guys were slaughtering tens of thousands. I think Solomon slaughtered 20,000 oxen at the dedication of his temple. Rivers of blood. And sprinkling it all. I mean, everybody's taking hyssop and dipping it in the blood and waving it around and throwing it by buckets on people. Yeah, John? How long did it actually purify their flesh? Well, in some ways, it, 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 the, there is God in his imaging of this, and you're going to find a later how much good it did, but in his image actually purified them. There's, some people suggest that the ashes and the fat of the animal sacrifice were used as soap. It's the elements of soap, and, and Phoenicians had soap this early in history, and so they think that the, the, uh, the, the sacrifices, with all the basins of water and all the washings that had to go on ritually, everything had to be scrubbed down, and they, they think that the, the sacrificial system was also a cleansing system, that the rendering out of the fat and the ash would make a soap that would make them clean, whether it did or not. Uh, he says, sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. Um, so it may have something to do with that. There were all sorts of cleanliness rituals to keep, keep the people clean, to keep the people healthy, to keep them intact. So that may have been something um, with it, but it was certainly, minimally, a shadow. Because we have in the actual blood of Christ, the death of our Lord, the sacrifice that actually does the deed. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred which redeems them from the transgression under the first covenant. Okay? For where the will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for the will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Hence, even the first covenant was not ratified without blood. He is suggesting that the, the acts of the covenant, the renewing of the covenant, the, the measures of the covenant, the, the uh, regularity of the sacrifices that had to be made, those were all things that constantly, by the shedding of blood, um, ratifies what's going on. That the death of Christ ratifies the new, the death of the animals were ratifying the old. Um, 
For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, and he refers back to what I read to you earlier in Exodus 24, throwing the blood on the people. This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And he does it, at the end of verse 22 he says, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. And a lot of people wonder, a lot of people wonder whether there was forgiveness of sins in the shedding of blood in the Old Covenant. It says there, you have to shed blood to forgive sins, but does that mean that that was working for them? Did it mean that God's grace, because you killed a sheep, went out to you? Let's continue before we try to answer that. Because we're going to see uh, this commonality. Not only are they at odds with each other, not as only one weak and useless and obsolete and killing and one successful, utopian, pristine, internal, natural, you know, glorious um, uh, sacrifices of bulls, goats, Jesus Christ, uh, big difference. But they're connected in that one uh, is a copy. Verse 23, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. He's saying that the tabernacle was a built image of what Moses was shown on the mountain, the heavenly court or whatever. The heavenly things are purified by heavenly sacrifices. For Christ has entered not into a sanctuary made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place yearly with blood not his own. For then he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's such a perfect sacrifice this is such a utopian thing that we're coming across. That's probably utopian is not the good word because it means nowhere or no place. I, I, but we want to stress how gloriously different this covenant is. The death in it sufficed. The death was infinite. It was the righteous God made man, taking incarnate form and being killed? You can't get more death than that. The immortal dies, I think, as Charles um, Wesley says. Is it Charles Wesley? Yeah. Mystery all, uh -huh. the, immortal the immortal dies. And, and you start to realize, oh, and he doesn't have to come back and offer it time and again. He is serving this task in heaven, the heavenly temple, whereas the priests of Moses were serving in an earthly tent that was a copy but people get caught up in earthly religions and think that it is the place of value. They stop at the sign that says five miles to Albuquerque and think they're in Albuquerque. Now, it's verse 27, it says, Just as it is appointed to men to die once and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Now one of the things we preach in Christianity is when we preach this path to God 
how to become one of the chosen people of God, how to become good, how to measure good, how to live correctly, we find this new covenant in the death of Christ, which deals with forgiveness and grace and law internalized to obey. But it's also what you say when you preach Christ in the gospel, it is the forgiveness of sins and life eternal. And so the promise has grown a little bit here in the writing of Hebrews, that says not only does he free you from sin, not just does he free you from iniquity and write his law on your heart so that you can be, as long as you might live here on earth, living a peaceable moral life, but you're also granted salvation at his return. That he will come back a second time. Chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices which are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered. But the worshippers had once been cleansed, if the worshippers had once been cleansed, they would have no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin year after year, for it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Now, it said that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. But then it tells you blood and bulls and goats don't take care of it. Now, it may have taken care of some aspect of it that I am unaware of. Uh, it may be talking about the very sinful nature because you took an Old Testament faithful Jew, he doesn't become a Christian by following the Old Covenant. He does not get renewed in the Holy Spirit. The old man does not pass away. He is not made a new creature in Christ. He's just a, you might say, a faithful pagan. He is just some pagan who got the word from God passed down to him through Abraham, and he knows what's right to do, and he does it because he loves God, but he hasn't been changed. The death of Christ, the new covenant, isn't something you agree with. It's something that has to happen to you. You have to agree with it, yes. But it has to happen. Otherwise, the law is not written inside you. You have to know God. You, because you have to be one of those people that no one has to tell you, know the Lord, because you will already know Him. So, the blood of bulls and goats doesn't change man into a naturally ethical being. The ethics of the New Covenant is you are naturally ethical. You say, well, I have seen the church. That guy go to church. I know a lot of Christians. Why is most of my counseling load Christians? If, well, a lot of cases is they don't believe this. They don't believe this. Down in verse 9, it says, he abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. These are strong, confident statements. Now, it doesn't say that a Christian can't sin. It's just saying the condition of the Christian in his ethical pursuit is not one where he reaches out to the church's rules for this or the rules of Moses for this because those are written codes. He consults whether or not his heart is telling him what he ought to be doing. 
because not because his heart with his motivations that is like some Disney film as long as you follow your own dreams um, now it's whether or not the dream of God's righteousness was put in you by God's Holy Spirit if the dream of God's righteousness was put in you by God's Holy Spirit you can have reference to that but you have to have stepped to this higher level doesn't mean you can't sin. It says that in in First um, John. I'm writing these things to you, my brother, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We know that our covenant does have a mediation of grace for sin. It's the blood of Christ. It takes care of it. And also it has a path to future righteousness, which is internalized law. Internalized character, being a Christian. In verse 14 it says, For by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's what's wonderful about this. Now you, given your variety of theologies that may be here, you are you know, some people believe that Jesus Christ uh, died on the cross with all your sins in mind, they think quantitative death. Some people think that it's qualitative in its death. In other words, it's so big that you can't expect it to be died again. It would never have to be died again because it's an infinite death and every sin is covered by that kind of death. Qualitative. Qualitative, and some people are quantitative. But the old thing didn't perfect people, didn't have this process of making you holy. There's a possibility of holiness in the New Covenant. There wasn't a possibility of holiness in the Old. You found the guys that were the most the friend of God, you know, chasing other women, uh, being brutal, uh, doing all sorts of, you know, failing things. Hey, David was a friend of God, and he has a guy killed for his wife. I mean, that's pretty, that's not even on TV. Even when they made the movie with Richard Gere as David, they didn't have him sleep with Bathsheba until after he killed it, Uriah. I said, this is Hollywood. You'd think they would have jumped at the chance to have these guys be really wicked. He was really wicked. S Samson was wicked. All these guys were wicked. Uh, they weren't being perfected by the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was external. The Old Covenant was external, and it met a people group. It was the maintenance of a people group. It tells us here towards the end of this section, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Okay, There's that allusion to what the picture in the Old Covenant was. Moses out there doing the hyssop thing with the blood and we have had our hearts sprinkled clean. <clears throat> because that's where our covenant rests. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now that's the key beginning point of what we're talking about, the second half of the new covenant. We know the death of Christ for sin. We've all, when we got the gospel preached to us and we repented, we know this, the great relief of being forgiven. The new covenant was great on forgiveness. The new covenant's law, the second part of that thing in Jeremiah, is 
this path to holiness, this path to uh, righteousness. Galatians 3.6 Thus Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So he's quoting the covenant, back of the first covenant, 75 years old. So you see that it is men of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now there he's saying it's not just, okay, if you go through the law, Abraham and then the people, the patriarchs, the people, the tribes, the, the nation, the law, that was creating a uh, physical image, a shadow, um, a copy. Even the temple was a copy. Uh, but back with Abraham, back at that beginning point, there's a hint that Paul picks up here in Galatians and in Romans. He quotes it in Romans 4, and, and James also quotes it. Um, that Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That behind it all, the real you might say nature of the covenant. What God wanted out of man was always present. Faith. It's present with Abraham and it was present down. You look at the writer of Hebrews, he has later on in the book a whole chapter listing all the Old Testament saints who had faith. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So that those who are men of faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Yeah, I want you to remember the old covenant cripple. The old covenant obsolete, weak, useless. And here, cursed. As it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no man is justified by God by the law, for he who through faith is righteous shall live. So it's letting you know that the path to this ethics of the new covenant, if I want this new covenant, has to be through faith. I'm, I'm seeing it in Abraham, and he quotes Habakkuk here. Uh, you know, it's evident that no man is, ju is justified before God by the law, he, for he who through faith is righteous shall live. That's out of Habakkuk. The old path is keep all the rules, make all the sacrifices, or you're cursed. The new path is, your righteousness shall be by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. So there's this at odds quality that even Christ, that he, he walks in, he takes or propitiates or atones for all that we did that was a violation of the law. He becomes that cursed thing to free us from that thing. I'm going to skip over the next few verses, one because our time is short and because it's uh, a little convoluted about the nature of uh, inheritance and wills and the like. Um, but starting out in verse 21 here if, is the law then against the promises of God? certainly not for if a law had been given which could make alive then righteousness would be indeed by the law it's not against the promises of God we just need to tell its story its place in the narrative is not oh God made this great attempt in Moses to get over to be good and they wouldn't God knew that people were going to be good it wasn't that if you could make laws that would make people good, he would have. But the scripture consigned, the law consigned all things to sin, that what was promised to faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
it was, the narrative really was not a, a gallant attempt at holiness. It was a clear rendition of the state of man. This, the people of Israel, the descendant from Abraham, the promised people, were given this image. We have the story of their history from Exodus on telling you how rotten they are. I mean, for a biography of a people group who claimed to be the people of God, you kind of would want to suppress it. You know, it's not, it's not one of those. It was a tell-all book, you know, where, you know, your, your ex-wife writes a book about you, you know. Uh, put all the rotten stuff in. God puts all the rotten stuff in. Scripture consigned all things to sin. There was no way that man in his state was going to be good. God was going to make, you might say, a, he was going to place a banner, place a clear signpost, place uh, something where he had made his name dwell in their temple. He has made their prophets, sent prophets to them, prophets to them, prophets to them. He reminded them constantly, and he was going to bring the Messiah to them so that the narrative wouldn't just pop up in India. You know, he's not going to go, oh, this is going through here, and then in Kansas, some aboriginal tribe, and then the Messiah shows up. No, the Messiah comes to the people he watched in this narrative and described in this narrative. Oh, who's that? They must be thinking the Bible says over. They're wrong. Now, before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint. This is a good section. I recommend you read it again uh, when you have the time. Kept under restraint until faith should be revealed, so that the law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. The old covenant is obsolete. It was weak and useless. It didn't do holiness. It did custody. It was like a foster family. It was, it was like at not even a half measure. The glory of the Christ is far above the glory of Moses. But it was to enact the covenant made with Abraham. It was to restrain people, try to put hedges up against them from completely imploding as a people group or as a nation, and to maintain it down through, remarkably, down through millennia. But now we have that which enacts and maintains by faith. They had it by birth, a national connection, and that law was to guide the, the people group, and we are not under that anymore. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It removes all that nationalistic physical identity issues because the new covenant just jumps over that right to the individual. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. He connects us to the old covenant, but the old covenant's back door. What was true with Abraham, he was given a physical covenant. I'll give you a son, and I'll make you a great nation. That was kept through the old covenant. And the back door was it was Abraham's faith in God. He believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And that back door is what the front door of it represented the need for, called people to, was the testimony of toward this great new covenant. Now in chapter 4, he lets them know, these, the, the, the Galatians are having a problem. They're not Jews. They become Christians and some Jews have come up to Galatia 
and are trying to lead them back into the law. And Paul has already had some rather harsh words for them earlier, calling them idiots. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, you're now ending with the flesh? That's what Paul sees this split in the covenant. What I said earlier, the covenant has two fronts. One is uh, atonement, and one is active, proactive righteousness. And the new covenant has to handle both. You don't want to step into the new covenant by grace through faith and then step back into the old because that's apostasy for your righteousness. He says, back in verse 3, we were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe when we were children. Then now we become sons of God. And then he gets down to verse 9. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, so they've stepped across that line, they've had the atonement applied to their lives, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Okay? You've got to be sure that you don't trip yourself up, because too often a person becomes a Christian, and then they go find a Bible church, that somebody recommends because they're strong for the kingdom. And you find that some of those are the worst about applying the law, the written code, rather than saying, you know, if you've come into Christ, you've been wonderfully changed, and God has changed your heart towards sin, and he has written his law on your hearts. Now, it's not just everybody gets to make up their own law, <coughs> because we do have a Bible, <coughs> and we are able to check with the apostles, people who did have the Holy Spirit, and to find out whether or not the Spirit in us is the Spirit in St. Paul. That's what I like to check in the Scriptures. Is the Spirit in me the Spirit that moves St. Paul, St. Peter, St. James, St. Luke, whatever the guys that you want to represent, but whatever the case, it's going to have certain qualities. It's not going to be a liturgical calendar observing days, seasons, and years. How can you go back to that kind of religion? Then he gives, skipping over a number of verses in chapter 4, towards the end of the chapter, he actually, it's almost like you can't kick the Old Covenant far, far enough down the road. For all of its right placement in the narrative, understanding it correctly, knowing what God's doing with it, how it gets used, or how its strength in people's lives has got to be really defeated. And Paul sets up this allegory where he makes the law and the law keepers children of Hagar. And he makes the children of the true uh, faith the children of Sarah. Now what's odd is you go back to that passage in Genesis 17 and Abram is going, couldn't Ishmael live before you? Couldn't that we just have him be the child of the promise? He says, no. I'm sure I'll bless Ishmael, but, but it's going to be Isaac. It's going to be Isaac. He's now telling in Galatians, Paul's going, and all you Jews, you're Ishmaelites. You are the sons of Hagar. Anybody, the phrase that Al always applies to himself, a wild ass of a man. I, I, that's where it comes from, Ishmael. A wild ass of a man. Um, but um, it is letting us know that this degree of superiority, uh, Paul wants them to have firmly fixed we are not, verse 31, so brethren, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. 
Now, if you try to go back at this point, now this says uh, uh, for chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now that verse, you have to remember, is right in the middle of the discussion of the covenants and whether or not you are free by what God has done in you with the new covenant. Don't let it become a rule of Mosaic law. Now I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Because if you split the covenant, the key thing of what God wants out of this relationship, this covenant with you, what he wants, having this personal thing, you being his chosen people, his son, his child, he's going to lose. He's going to be busy forgiving you your whole life, and you'll be busy living by the law. He wants you to be wonderfully forgiven and then perfected because you're living by the heart he gave you. And he tells you, Christ will have no advantage. It'll be, you'll have no advantage. Now, it doesn't say if you receive circumcision because, you know, in the history of the United States in the last few hundred years, that's been standard uh, for young men. What well, hasn't been religiously so. This is people who take on circumcision in the ancient world in order to become faithful Jews. I testify again. Every man who receives circumcision that he is bound to keep the whole law. If you grant that the law is powerful in one point, it's in everything. You can't say, oh, I take it here. If the law is guiding, the law binds you. You are severed from Christ. You who'd be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, if I read that passage in a discussion on loss of salvation, you know, because we like to get into those, do you believe you can lose your salvation? Well, let me read you Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. You are severed from... Remember what we're talking about. You are... You have stepped aside from what the power of the covenant is that you're in. If you choose to be justified by the law. If you, the word justified just means made righteous. If you choose to be made righteous by the law, you are falling away from grace. Because grace is the path by which we do it. For through the Spirit, by faith, we wait for the, right, the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. This is the path of the Christian. The faith brings us to the point where we get the atonement of God for our sins, and the writing of God's law on our hearts writes it the way God wants it performed. This isn't just I, I look inside to my internal Rolex or my hard drive and, and see kind of a backwards print of the Mosaic law inside me. No, the law of God is faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. One of my favorite verses. I almost want a t-shirt made with that on it. You can apply it to so many things. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. People can persuade you. It tells about that in Colossians. I quote that all the time as well because Paul was big on this issue. Why do you submit to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Which all have the appearance of wisdom, but are of no value in checking the indulgence of the flesh. You're, you're try, people are trying to persuade you to split the covenant. To put Jesus' name of forgiveness onto a sanctification name of the law. That I will live by the law. It's not from Jesus Christ this idea comes. 
You say, well, what am I to do? How is ethics in the new covenant supposed to work? Well, turn off the law and see if you become a raping murderer. Turn off the law in your life to see whether or not you have Jesus Christ, because this is a metaphysical shift that goes on in your life. What is it that J.C. Watts used to say in political circles? Character is what you do when no one's looking. You know, that is what we're looking at as Christians. What we do when there is no law. What we do when there is no law. And then he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's the, uh, probably an added, uh, refer, referring to the leaven of the Pharisees, but whatever the case, a little bit of this, if you take circumcision, hey, you're bound to keep the whole thing. It's going to creep into your life, and pretty soon you're going to be running your moral condition off of what rules have been pronounced in front of you, not what kind of person Jesus Christ has made you to be. You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Say, what is the path of the new covenant ethics? You, by faith, come to forgiveness. A wonderful change. You have met God. He strikes this deal with you. You have this treaty with God in which his law is inside you, his way. And you find that that freedom says, look, it's not going to lead you over here to the flesh where you answer everything you want. Now there's no law in your life. It says, but through love be servants of one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I've included on the right-hand side Jesus Christ telling you that that's the second greatest commandment, that all the law and the prophets are fulfilled in those two things. Love God, love your neighbor. Then St. Paul in Romans, uh, owe no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Jesus Christ... The, the, you might say the, the linchpin that he has written out in your, on your heart is, uh, that's a really bad mixed metaphor. You don't write out a linchpin, do you? I don't even know what a linchpin is. What's a linchpin? Anybody know? Is it like a cotter pin or something like that? Anybody here know what a cotter pin is? Um, okay, forget the linchpin. Just say that God scribed on your heart love. Because he knows it's love of God and love of your neighbor that fulfills, that you become naturally that way. That's why you don't wrong your neighbor. All those things that it has to tell unloving people what to do, it's because they're not naturally loving people. Christians are naturally loving people. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. And we find that it goes down in, again, I will uh, come in uh, for a landing on this. The basic idea is that the desires, the, the, the fears Christians have is because they do not believe in the power of God to save sinners. They do not believe in the power of God to sanctify those that he saves by a work of his Holy Spirit. Not because he makes you holy, he makes you able to be holy. You still have to be warned not to gratify the desires of the flesh. And that should just be easily pointed out to you. St. Paul lets you know what the Spirit in him tells you what the works of the flesh here in verse 19 are. And then he tells you what the, work, the fruit of the Spirit are in verse 22. And they're all conditions of being. They're not rules. It doesn't say love, and I mean love these people, those people, your mom, your stepmom, you know, it doesn't tell you what to love. In the law of Moses, it tells you. It tells you how to clean mildew off the wall. 
It tells you how to get a priest to come in and check the mildew to make sure you cleaned it right. It tells you which level of relations you can be married to. If you marry a sister, you can't marry, Leslie and I were talking about it last night, you can't marry a, girl, a woman and her sister. It's okay. <laughs> All right. But here it just tells you the new covenant says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. If that law has been written on your heart, any of us would trust you with anything. Even marrying sisters? Even marrying sisters. You don't have a sister. I don't. Oh. <laughs> Kelly's relieved. <laughs> This is the kind of life the Christian is supposed to have. I had this Ephesians passage here on the end. Um, it doesn't directly mention the covenant, the new covenant, but it does um, draw up that distinction. We are strangers, verse 12, to the covenants of promise, the Ephesians were. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ, the new covenant. And look what it says. He has made us, verse 14, our peace. For he is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby bringing the hostility to an end. And then it says, we through him, we both have access to one spirit to the Father. This path to ethical behavior in the new covenant is a, um, it's a mystic path, but it's a very clearly delineated path. It says, this is what has to happen. You have to recognize the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You fall on your knees, you call on him for forgiveness of sins. And you're set free. You're given this new nature. You're being made into a new kind of creature, not Jew, not Gentile, not male, not female, not slave, not free, not barbarian, not Scythian, not all sorts of things you're not. You're this new thing, a new kind of ethical creature, and we have access to this one spirit, all of us, regardless of where we are, who we are, how bright we are, to this one spirit who is the writing of this law on us who has placed in us his fruit, who has written this issue of love out for us, that we would be good to other people. We have, we should not even be breaking sweat being good. Because it's not, it's not hard to be good. And when a person examines himself, a person examines himself and finds, yeah, I be believe all this, but it is hard for me to be good then they need to really consider whether they've met Jesus Christ. They need to consider whether or not they have come to grips with what the new covenant is. It has to have that personal experience. Not, it really is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is a little bit cliche by this point in history, but the idea that you have to be forgiven of your iniquity and you have to have something in, internal done to you, means that that moment, that submission to God has to be complete. Next week we'll be discussing the faith 
that is that we did we just sort of glossed over we threw the word in there said okay by faith this happens so next week we're going to be looking at uh, saving faith and a saved faith uh, and what are the things that trip us up in regard to faith because a lot of people who don't find themselves acting like think or thinking like Christians can remember at camp they really did believe or they really walked the aisle or they signed the card or they did something and they thought they believed they don't believe anything else so <laughs> they're wondering what's wrong with the faith what's what why did God not save them God not give them this new covenant well let's thank God dear Lord we're very grateful thank you for this covenant we are grateful that after all these centuries and millennia that through the teaching of your Christ and your apostles your prophets we had this promised good thing it came to pass for each of us singly and severally we'd ask that we would be rejoicing in the life we have in your son and that our time together uh, fellowshipping would be uh, buoyed by that truth in your son's name we pray and thanks for the cookies in your son's name amen there are cookies i believe unless the back row has been eating them okay.